up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and we are in version 2.0 of the pod officially. Arguably, we have been for uh, several weeks now. But this is our first variety episode as a team. And so I've got my new-ish co-hosts here. Um, Hunter Mosden, who everybody knows. Hey, guys. And... Kate Kaiser, whom everybody possibly doesn't know. I think I mentioned Kate on the pod before, but Kate, A, welcome. B, do you have like an intro? I should have asked you, actually, if you have an intro ready for like, what, who are you or like what you, where you come from? You always have to have the elevator speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I spent the last like 10 years in D.C. doing policy advocacy on foreign policy writ large um, to Congress and the executive branch, mostly focused on the Middle East, but also on the United States use of force globally. So uh, lots of fun stories to share, um, but I'm currently a senior non-resident fellow at the Center for International Policy. Yes, so I've worked with Kate a little bit and she's amazing and you'll find that out. The Middle East stuff is such a huge compliment to our broing out about China. We're like over leveraged on Asia, you know what I mean? So that's, you're going to bring like the world. Yeah. You're going (laughs) to rebalance the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And center for international policy, people who don't know, it's kind of like, I don't want to say it's like a left policy think tank, but it does real policy analysis the way like every normal think tank aspires to like real stuff, data even, but it, Mm. it does it with a mission that is like very grounded in in a kind of anti-war politics and anti-militarism, which makes it, I mean, literally unique, I think, in Washington. Um, So that's very cool. And maybe now that you're here, we'll like bring in research that they do. I don't know. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. This is awesome. 2.0 quick hits, quick hits. The way these new episodes are going to work, we've got quick hits for now. Stay off Twitter and armchair analysis. And Those are all segments that we had before, but we're going to do them like slightly differently than before. So at least for this episode, I'll lead everything off so that it, so if there's like egg on someone's face, it's mine, I suppose, but (laughs) we'll just see how it works. Um, So, and are we not accepting, ask me anything anymore? I suppose we can, we haven't solicited any, so I guess we would have to Mm. solicit some, ask me anything's. Um, If you do want to ask anything to the pod listeners, feel free to ask us. Okay. Um, and then we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. If you have ideas, listeners for segments on the pod too, let us know. Uh, we're adapting and evolving. So fucking a actually. So, um, I'll do a quick hit and then, uh, Kate and Hunter have a quick hit as well. So leading off, I can't not talk about the mass uprisings happening across Chinese cities. This could be a profoundly big deal. We don't know. I mean, like nobody can predict. And uh, in Stay Off Twitter, we'll talk about how the Biden administration is kind of handling messaging around this. But I just wanted to shout out here a statement that was issued by the Dove and Crane Collective. I'll, I'll try to put a link in the show notes, although I'm like really notoriously bad at that. They're a fairly new network of, of Chinese diaspora who have explicitly progressive goals in a, like a lowercase p sense. And chief among those goals is, of course, like averting Sino-US conflict. And so these uprisings, I guess by way of background, the uprisings in China, they were triggered by the death of workers and families in a fire in a Foxconn factory in Xinjiang. And basically, China's COVID zero lockdown policy had blocked the entrances of this factory so that when the fire broke out on November 24th, uh, people inside couldn't escape. Firefighters couldn't respond in time. And this was a triggering incident that inflamed protests uh, against COVID zero lockdowns around the country. But the uprising is not really about the COVID lockdown per se. It's like the intersection of COVID lockdown with China's oligarchic economy, right? With what Darren Byler called it like terror capitalism. It's this deeply oppressive situation that workers face in China that has intersected with COVID. And so it's the precarity plus surveillance state that creates this sudden explosion, you know? And America is not like to blame for the CCP surveillance state, but we're not, our hands are not clean when it comes to the nightmare conditions that factory workers 
have to work in. Foxconn services the American economy. Like it's a Taiwanese company. That kind of goes to show you that like identifying good guys and bad guys on the basis of a fucking nation state is going to be misleading, you know? Also Foxconn's business in China, it's assembling electronic parts for iPhones and shit for the US export market. And it's, it's labor repression. It's making fucking slaves out of people that gives China the competitive advantage for Foxconn to be doing their thing in China. And so all of that is like a prelude to this Dove and Crane collective statement. Um, I'll just read like a tiny part of it real quick. The tragedy and the ensuing protests are not isolated incidents. The lockdown policies in China have specifically caused suffering among workers, non-Han Chinese ethnic groups and Han Chinese ethnic ethnic groups alike and stimulated discontent throughout the pandemic. The last few years have seen the expansion of precarious sectors in China to maintain the profitability of corporations at the expense of workers. Much of these profits enabled by an alliance between the Chinese state and corporate industries directly benefit the Chinese elites and those of us in the global north. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, Foxconn was notorious for its horrendous working conditions and egregious labor practices. Under China's COVID zero policy, Foxconn implemented quote unquote closed loop production at its Zhengzhou factory as directed by the Chinese State Council, which prevented workers from leaving its production complex, which serves both Apple and Amazon, by the way. And then two days before the fire on November 22nd, Protests erupted at Foxconn's Zhengzhou factory over the horrendous conditions faced by its workers in the closed loop production. There's more. It says more. There's a call to action. There's some other stuff in there. Um, I just wanted to highlight it because, A, I thought it was great messaging. But also, B, one of the reasons why they have really great messaging here is that they're focusing on what's going on there. They're focused, they're centering the Chinese people and workers. But even more than that, they're framing what's happening so that we understand this not as like a mysterious, isolated event, but part of a pattern, right? It's kind of like a system's view of what's going on. Worker protests were already ongoing, right? They had been going on for a month prior, but now everyone in China is united by this kind of suffering under collective COVID zero. So like even normal people, even uh, normal people, that's terrible. Even like privileged people in China are subjected to the kind of like surveillance and controls that Uyghurs have to undergo, right? That workers at factories have to undergo. So there's like a common suffering and that's why this thing is a united uh, protest movement as opposed to the like very localized things that happened before. Uh, so shout out to Dove and Crane Collective. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. That was kind of long-winded, sorry. Yeah, I, I think it's important we call attention to this. Uh, I also heard recently you know you, you mentioned the uh sort of complicity of american uh and multinational firms <clears throat> listeners i apologize i'm sick getting over a cold here if you want further evidence of multinational firms and american companies selling their souls to the chinese state for profit i heard that uh apple recently issued a new release of its firmware or software and in china blocked the airdrop feature which has been instrumental to uh, sharing photos and locations uh, for the purpose of coordinating protests, um, which is just, you know, something to be ashamed of. I, I just really, yeah, that really took me back. Gosh, I worked in tech when I remember the tech companies, they refused to go into China. And now it's just been a whole shift where they will create this separate internet, right? And there's this whole, I just remember back in the day, was Google going to create a separate search for China and all these various questions, right? Um, but it's so interesting because I, I appreciate the system's view too, because it calls out like the actual power structures that are at play that are keeping people in these situations. And it's also interesting because it's often rooted in that intersection between corruption and governance, right? And what in theory is very, very basic. And I think what's been interesting about the China protests to me is that they're seemingly from at least interviews on the street, and obviously all, a lot of this is anecdotal, but you know, many folks out at the protest it was like their first time at a protest right yeah. and that they were they would go again if if people were going to be there and so I, it's this really interesting show of solidarity that i think is really important but you know it's also it's not up to us what happens i think um the u.s could 
play a much more constructive role if we weren't beating our chests a bunch of times about how the Chinese military is going to take over the world, um, as the DOD tends to do. But yeah. it's, uh, I'm really glad to see the Chinese American diaspora and Asian American diaspora organizing around this because they're an incredibly important voice that hasn't been listened to in Washington on China policy at all. Um, and it's important that not only their activism is centered, but the way that they are centering um, the people in China who are the ones organizing for change is really important and something that's typically rare in Washington analysis. You want to go, Hunter? Sure. Yeah. While we're in Asia, um, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Evan Feigenbaum, who is something of a friend of the pod, uh, if, if that's fair to say. Um, so Evan gave a what I thought was a terrific keynote speech in Ottawa recently at uh, the East Asia Strategy Forum, um, hosted by the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy and the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Um, in this piece, I think Evan gives a really good overview of the contradictions in U.S.-Asia strategy. Uh, primarily, he highlights three collisions, as he calls them, um, and tries to describe the region that actually exists rather than sort of the region we imagine and project uh, our policy goals onto. Um, so those collisions are economic integration versus security fragmentation, coalition building versus uh, similar fragmentation, especially across the democratic world, and then U.S.-China policy uh, from where Washington sits, and then what is often a stark difference in the China policies of countries around the world who may favor a more inclusive approach. Um, and what he, what he highlights here, I think that's really good, is that the U.S. was uh, in the post-Cold War order and, and still remains uh, primarily the security provider of the region. Um, and he sees that continuing, actually, U.S. primacy. But what's hollowed out at the same time is the U.S. is no longer a norm setter. And as the U.S. has failed to show up to the new regional economic architecture, including the RCEP and TPP um, and other digital trade agreements, the U.S. is no longer uh, providing uh, sort of uh, public goods in the way it used to. And therefore, demand for U.S. leadership uh, as U.S. relative, um, uh, the U.S.'s ability to provide public goods declines relative to other new, new players, uh, including China, uh, but also Japan, because the region is inherently multipolar. Um, as that trend deepens, he sees the U.S. Uh, strategy resting increasingly on just the security pillar which is something we've highlighted before. And when everything becomes security, then your economic and state industrial policies also become securitized, uh, which is a trend that I think Evan is right of the money on here. Yeah. I don't watch a lot of like people's events and, you know, all these Zoom fucking conferences and stuff. This was, who's got time for all of it, you know? I, I did happen to watch this one because it was my my... I'm affiliated with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. And I was like, oh, I better pay attention to what they're doing. And so, and then I know Evan, right? So like, I was curious what he was going to say, you know, Evan and I do not share the same politics. I think everybody fucking knows that, but like analytically we're actually very similar. So like, he's very smart on Asia. I've said that before. We're so similar, I think on Asia analysis that we share some of the same talking points. And we see the trend lines the same way, maybe on like prescriptions and what to do. We differ um, how much to say like primacy is desirable versus sustainable. I think we might probably disagree, but uh, yeah, like his analysis is fucking on point. And so this was a great, this was a great keynote. You know, I, I don't know that I would have done it so differently. I think my only qualm is this, uh, you know, endless call for restored American leadership. And I think yeah. this real nostalgia in D.C. about what that actually means, because when you talk to countries in the global south, I've been doing um, engagement at the U.N. recently. And it's just so interesting how just completely out of touch U.S. policy is with the perception of global south countries and what they want from the global north, what they expect from the United Nations. Right. And how the United States actively carving out, you know, whether it's a exemption in international law or not ratifying the Rome statute for the ICC, for example, right, we're, we're hollowing out our soft power mm -hmm. and hollowing our, our leadership. And so it's, it's this kind of just 
I don't know, it always comes to actually this wild contradiction of like, okay, do you want to use these tools or not? To be credible, you have to subject yourself to them, right? So what, yeah. what are we all doing here? Yeah, I mean, I think Evan, I think is very good about in, in DC, measured against a DC standard, like about 100. being like nonpartisan and that kind of thing. But I, I one of the things that you see in, in a speech like this is like, you you can't challenge the premise of American leadership or even American primacy as part of the price of conversation in DC. There's a reason why like the Quincy Institute doesn't end up in the same conferences with like CSIS. You know what I mean? Um, to go to like two extremes, I suppose. But the, like you you have to be willing to accept like a certain minimum of what is like the standard fare liberal internationalism in order to have an audience in DC, you know? Um, so it's stuff like that framing the premise. That's where I like, I, I would like get on a different page maybe than Evan, but trend lines were there. We're seeing, we're seeing Asia the same way, you know? Um, so kudos. That's refreshing. All right. Um, my quick hit is a shout out to Shervin Malik Saude. Uh, who's a professor at Colgate. She wrote a piece in the LA Times about what comes next for Iran after the Islamic Republic, given that the protests are still ongoing. Yeah. Um, that began in September at this point, um, after the killing of Masa Amini, an Iranian Kurdish woman, um, because she wasn't wearing her veil properly. And unfortunately, they've uh, this morality police security forces have continued to kill unveiled women. Um, recently, another teenage uh, age person was killed. Um, but the point that Shervin makes that I wanted to pull out um, was talking about how building power requires actually having conversations across difference and understanding where people are. Mm -hmm. So you can build strategies to either move them, bring them along, or, you know, corral them if you will if that's your strategy to build power around them and um something that happens in these mass protests uh movements and we saw this in the arab spring we're seeing this in the protests in china now you have these movements that are mass mobilizations they're leaderless often right and the yeah. question is always like what comes next and i think part of the challenge and we see this in u.s progressive politics too is what often happens is folks especially as polarization gets wider and wider, um, misinformation becomes ever more prevalent. I think people are increasingly reverting back into camps and being afraid to have conversations with people who they assume don't agree with them. And in Shervin's example, it's the uh, some members of the religious establishment in Iran is her point that we actively should be reaching out to them, um, organizers should be, because there has been... Um, folks in the religious establishment have for a long time been anti-IRI, right? Um, they also believe that the revolution in 79 was co-opted by the clerics. And so there's there has been, you know, um, the reformist presidents because the assumption is that folks in the religious establishment are so conservative or just with the regime, we can't talk to them. It often ends up, we assume things and we then don't reach out. We don't have those conversations mm. that often are rather low stakes because what could happen on the other end is they just say no. Right. And I just think it's a really important lesson to be pulling out that we need to be using not only whether it's in Iran or in the States, but really everywhere and across borders, because ultimately the challenges that we face are transnational and we're all sitting within this kind of global conflict of, climate crisis, mass inequality, right, increasing state violence. And I think that there's an increasing question of where does legitimacy come from? Mm -hmm. And increasingly, is a nation state legitimate? I don't know. I think a lot of people in Europe are afraid to grow up with that less question. Less and less. But I but think yeah. it's going to become more and more prevalent. <laughs> yeah. No, it was an interesting piece. And it's interesting that the mass protest movements happening in Iran, too. From being honest, I'm very worried about where it goes from here um, and how the state, particularly the regime in Iran and the CCP, are going to react to mass protests. Because mm -hmm. I can only, I can only, mm. I can only imagine you know, repression and not restraint. But uh, I don't know, we'll see. The important thing, I guess, for, especially for this piece was 
the the way that like any kind of people power grounded politics or any people power grounded movement it's inherently cross category you know and probably cross class too like it's got to be unity with people who are different and from you who have different goals than you you know but you have shared interests and it's the shared interests that will make make the magic happen or whatever um there was a famous tweet that I now take as like a slogan for good strategy, which is fuck with people who be fucking with you. And it's <laughs> kind of just that simple, you know? So like you got to find out if they're fucking with you and then you can have solidarity and then you win, you know? So <laughs> I'm sure there's some it's, steps it's in between. Testing, but, right? Yeah. You, like, you don't really know. And yeah. I think that's part of, you know, we, it's, kind of like we'll have more to say on this later but it's kind of how you know all of these rather anti-semitic people in the states proclaim they love israel but then talk about how much they hate jews right so it's like what's going on here and i think that's where it's Mm. like we have to really test these days Mm -hmm. with the level of misinformation with people uh co-opting rhetoric that sounds anti-colonial right that sounds progressive like putin did in his speech a month or so ago and and really it's it's kind of similar to how the united states has used human rights rhetoric right as kind of a cudgel Mm -hmm. to build power in ways that it finds useful for itself and i think it's important to recognize how those dynamics actually shape how we see the world yeah no, it's a fair point. I thought it was interesting too that the piece uh, points out a couple of interesting things occurring, which I, I don't follow around. I don't know much about. Uh, I wonder if you have more evidence of, but uh, she mentions um, some of the older Iranians who are joining the young, what t- tend to be young protesters, right? So there are some cross uh, age group uh, solidarity um, solidarities here. Um, but interestingly, I think what, what she doesn't, hammer home at the end, which, but I liked and that it got me thinking of was sort of that history has repeated itself in a way. You have now young Iranians uh, protesting against what is an old autocratic regime, much like the 1979 hmm. protests that toppled yeah. the former dictator, but only now the Revolutionary Guard is the old sort of cling to power and, and you know, refuse to change despite uh, clear demand from the streets. Um, and it's lost touch. The revolution in 1979, it started as an anti-imperialist revolution, right? And mm-hmm. like that that's where it it's interesting to see that so long as the underlying roots of conflict, right, and why people decide that a governing system is no longer working for them, you don't actually resolve those issues, they're going to come up again and again. There's what is the Batman quote like live long enough to see the hero become the villain or something like that. I, don't I appreciate know. that. May have to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. So stay off Twitter. I have uh, this really long tweet thread from Caroline Orbueno. She's a behavioral scientist at uh, University of Maryland. This is a intense usually i I usually prefer tweets that are like jokes or something um this is like a really intense thread and it's kind of like a bibliography in the difference between left wing and right wing um, extremism so she puts forward a bunch of evidence links to a bunch of studies and she says like look left-wing activists are responsible for two percent of murders committed by political extremists in the u.s over the past decade right-wing activists are responsible for 74 percent over that same period and if you look more broadly at terrorist attacks not just extremist murders right-wing attackers committed uh, a third of domestic terror attacks between 2010 and 2017 another 33 percent were unidentified ideologies or unknown or non-ideological only 13% were attributed to left-wing ideologies. She says a 2022 study that used two different data sets found that, quote, across both data sets, we find that radical acts perpetrated by individuals associated with left-wing causes are less likely to be violent, end quote. Uh, And she points to a CSIS report hardly a left-wing organization, that found that the number of far-right terrorist attacks quadrupled in the U.S. from 2016 to 2017 alone. 
She cites the Anti-Defamation League, who released a study that found that fucking 90% of murders in 2021 had ties to right-wing extremism. And in contrast to this, in 30 years of anti-fascist action in the U.S., there's only one recorded attributed fatality. And it was in 1993, and it was a dude who was a fucking Nazi who took the bullet. Okay. I may do a newsletter post about this because, like, I get incited by, like, the both sidesism uh, of a lot of arguments. And she wrote this thread being triggered by a kind of both sidesist claim. But her point is, like, you shouldn't conflate objectivity with neutrality. You know, if you follow the evidence, there's no societal threat from the left. And there's a big societal threat from the right. And the thing I wanted to point out with this thread is how consistent this data is with my own research on left and progressive foreign policy stuff. Like the biggest difference between the left and liberal internationalists, for example, is a commitment to anti-militarism. So like other than self-defense, violence is not an effective means of pursuing democracy or equality or peace, all of which are like bedrock convictions of the left, right? But violence does serve reactionary goals extremely well. And so when we talk about like left and right populism, right, those are completely different phenomena. They happen to have the same word in it, right? But it's completely different threat profiles. Like left populists, I said this on Twitter weeks ago, like left populists want to use democratic means to achieve democratic ends, right? Right populists want to use any means necessary to achieve power and status hierarchies. So like, what are we doing? Um, one of the most insightful threads I've ever seen on Twitter. Yeah. I can't follow that up. Caroline's awesome. I so appreciate her research and everything you said. I mean, it's incited is a really good word to describe how I feel about both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So what do you guys got? Well, I mean, <laughs> mine is slightly attached to that, I would say. Go ahead, um, Kate. This day off Twitter. So I have this thread that kind of like brings us in mid-conversation to conversation. So I'm going to like back up a little bit and give some context. Um, but relatedly, similar to what Van was just talking about, there's been a lot of fascism in the air lately. Um, a lot of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. flying around, whether it's Kanye West or Trump having dinner with Nick Fuentes, the white supremacist, um, and acting like he didn't know who it was. Um, uh, <laughs> um, one thing that I think so many folks have been grappling with is why is anti-Semitism surging so much? Why has the media so often just ignored right-wing anti-Semitism and just kind of, you know, poo-pooed it out of the way? I mean, Every time George Soros gets thrown around, you know anti-Semitism is going to come up, right? Because yeah. he's the quintessential Jew that is held up as the one pulling all the strings, despite that just being a total, complete conspiracy theory. Um, it has a fascinating history, actually. So the tweet I want to talk about within this context is kind of this sub-conversation that's been going on about, like, what is anti-Semitism? Because there's this kind of growing narrative in Europe in particular um, that we need to define anti-Semitism in order to be able to combat it. So, you know, me, as someone who's worked on counterterrorism and has followed the debate about defining the word terrorism, for example, in the U.S., at the U.N., we know that defining complex words like terrorism, like anti-Semitism, it comes with a whole lot of baggage. You can get it wrong really easily, right? And if you do get it wrong, or even maybe if you get it right, putting something, codifying something in law or in a resolution, for example, can actively give neo-fascist forces a tool or bad faith actors even a tool that they can abuse right for the purposes other than what it is meant for so this thread from martin konecki who runs the european middle east project um focused on israel palestine he's responding to the eu coordinator for combating anti-semitism who's lauding and responding to this special rapporteur on israel palestine um, talking about what's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism. Now you hear that entire like monstrosity of a phrase, and you're like, okay, it sounds really official. Like I'm, I'm of course against anti-Semitism. So 
right? It seems like this very official thing that is benign and should be just move right forward. And what, as we know, definitions are really only good as what they're used for, right? And so Martin's point in this thread where Ms. Sherbine is defending this definition, he's saying, well, let's look at how it's actually been used. Has it combated anti-Semitism? Has it actively educated people, created dialogue, right? Address the conditions that fuel anti-Semitism. But mm -hmm. in fact, because this definition, the way it's written, it wasn't even originally drafted to be a enforcement tool or a educational tool. It was actually created for data validation back in the day. But it, it the way it's written allows the conflation of virtually any legitimate criticism of Zionism or the state of Israel with anti-Semitism. And the way it's written, because it's so focused on criticism of Israel and it being anti-Semitic, it distorts how anti-Semitism animates related intolerances today, whether that's black racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, ethno-nationalism. And so the point that Martin's making is, okay, so one, we have kind of like an, I can never say this word, Epistemological. <laughs> oh, epistemological. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> epistemological. There we go. So, like, this definition have, has these issues just from looking at how it is structured, right? What it covers. But mm -hmm. when you look at how it's been implemented, it's primarily become a tool to curtail free speech that's about pro Palestinian rights. And mm -hmm. That is not necessarily counter speech, right? As this coordinator is arguing to combat anti-Semitism, it shuts down the conversation, right? If you're accused of being anti-Semitic, people typically are like, okay, well, gonna address that. They take it seriously because people want to be on mm. the right side of this issue. It's a very important issue. But what this has done is essentially it's been a push by the Israeli government to have institutions adopt a definition that enables the conflation of criticism of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism as a means of deflecting criticism from its entrenchment of not only the occupation, but what an increasingly weighty body of public, legal, domestic opinion says is the crime of apartheid. And so anyway, I, I bring this up because it seems like this very narrow niche conversation. Most folks, unless you're Jewish, probably aren't necessarily aware that it's even happening um, or yeah. that this like definition is being wielded on US campuses to cur curtail free speech about Palestine. But the reality is, is that because it's being seen as benign, more and more institutions, whether it's campuses or governments, are adopting it. And in the case of Germany, it's leading to people from being fired from their jobs for tweeting pro-Palestinian things that are not anti-Semitic. It resulted in um, the attempted cancellation of this giant film festival in Germany, a commissioner from the UN on the Commission of Inquiry for Israel-Palestine was disinvited to receive an, a human rights award uh, and was accused of being anti-Semitic because she talked about Israeli apartheid. This conversation is really set up to not actually talk about why anti-Semitism is rising today because we know that anti-Semitism increases as inequality increases, as other general intolerances increases, right? This It's a, it's a conspiracy theory that both punches up and punches down. Yeah. No, the the thread was interesting too. The context is the only way to make sense of the thread itself. Exactly. But like the, what was crazy to me about what you were just saying, but also the thread was like how there's an actual contested politics of anti-Semitism and reactionary forces out in the world, including that control the Israeli state, mm -hmm. use the politics of anti-Semitism to perpetuate reactionary goals, right? Except reactionary politics is bad for Jewish people in the main. It right? makes all and of so us like, less safe, right? Like, yeah, we're all fight. Yes. It's not it's not of so it's not of a different character than like uh like anti-queer or anti-lgbtq or uh anti-black racism or like uh discrimination it's going back to like the solidarity and like shared struggles thing you know it's just the weird thing here is about anti-semitism is like it's like uniquely charged 
and weaponized by the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't see right wing forces accusing the left too much of like anti-black racism or something. But you do see them do that with anti-Semitism. And then you get people like Trump who are like promoting an anti-Semitic politics. Like his whole project is not good for the Jews in, any more than it's good for most of us, you know. Um, but then he points to like the tokenism. He's like, well, my son-in-law's Jewish, you know. Or like, I'm great friends with Bibi. Mm-hmm. So how can I be anti-Semitic? And it's like, oh, come on, dude. Yeah, and this, <laughs> this I mean, this amazing scholar who's at Georgia State, Yelena Zubotic, she has talked about how she calls them pro-Israel anti-Semites, where it's essentially so long mm. as these right-wing players are saying, we love the state of Israel, which, you know, in the case of someone like Mike Pompeo is really rooted in his evangelicalism right and white christian nationalism that ultimately you know so long as they say the right thing they're not anti-semitic that doesn't make any sense right and it also it doesn't actually you know make anyone safer which i think is the whole point of being against anti-semitism no i'm glad you i'm glad you brought this up because i don't think we've talked about anti-semitism once in the pod Mm. um we have like a hundred god knows how many episodes um and it, like it does matrix into a lot of our conversations because white supremacy and everything. But yeah. well, it also tracks with militarism because for so long the right in America has used anti-Semitism to rally uh, U.S. Uh, support for Israel, weapons uh, sales, and sort of the U.S. Uh, force posture in the Middle East and support mm-hmm. of an uh, apartheid state. So it it sort of reinforces the status quo, which is sort of you know, beating back the uh, Muslim hordes and uh, standing for a strong Israel, which means standing for a strong U.S. military. Yeah, I think implicitly we have a kind of framework for making sense of it. We just don't, we haven't given it the airtime. Maybe it's due. So that's mm-hmm. good. Hunter, do you have a uh, a lighter tweet or no? <laughs> <laughs> it's lighter. Uh, but it'll be shorter, I think. Uh, sort of getting back to the uh, protests in China. This comes from uh, Derek Grossman, who's I, I think a listener uh, and friend. Um, friend of the pod, yeah. Derek at Rand organization or corporation says Biden admin is in an impossible situation with Chinese protests. If they support, then U.S. would be bolstering CCP narrative of foreign interference and meddling and further worse, worsening bilateral ties. If they ignore, then Biden admin's values based diplomacy will ring hollow. So I think uh, Derek gets at sort of one of the quintessential and perennial challenges in U.S. foreign policy, you know, sort of mixing uh, and aligning values and interests. Um, But it has wider implications as well, right? So if we don't support protesters in China, uh, it looks bad for America's foreign policy for the middle class. It also has implications. Conversely, if if we, uh, our silence uh, speaks volumes and um, if we do say something that it can be construed as... um, sort of anti-communism in a way that would unsettle new partners in Vietnam, for instance, who have a long mistrust of U.S. rhetoric of democracy and human rights as one way to topple the regime and put in place a new democratic government regime change. Um, So it's a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Um, And as Kate highlighted earlier, I think one of the most effective policy solutions here is not so much uh, an action or inaction dilemma, but empowering uh, voices in the Chinese community within the U.S., uh, which we've done a terrible job of doing in recent years in light of COVID and uh, sort of concerns about Chinese espionage around sensitive security, uh, scientific research institutions. Um, So going some way to uh, incorporate those voices into the debate to highlight that they have an important role to play in uh, American policy, not limited to um, the uh, protests around a certain sector per se, but to say, look, we cherish a society where you can speak your mind. Uh, we don't see that as a threat, uh, but not to take as clear a stance perhaps on saying this is tied to the CCP's legitimation or legitimacy uh, in Beijing, because that is a bit of a slippery slope and we don't want to uh, come off as, as promoting regime change. Yeah. I mean, one thing that so the tweet was reasonable, and I think the Biden administration's response or like quiet, relative quiet, like muted nature on this is 
responsible in in as so far as that you can say it's responsible it's on par with a biden administration that is like keeps its rhetoric under control and is like decent at slash good at managing messaging but like politics ain't just the discourse the thing that like i wish that the project that i'm like invested in that like i wish i could get dc liberals to like take seriously and in fact i will keep banging this fucking drum until you do um <laughs> is i don't know who i was pointing at there but um maybe maybe evan feigenbaum i don't know but like look at shit when it happens and then use the event to force you to think through a what hand might we have in this b how might we have made different decisions to make this situation better than it currently is like agnostic about time scales, you know, um, agnostic about like the magnitude of the challenge in the, the it's you, you have to like train yourself to a way of thinking that takes seriously root causes and that tries to explain things, not simply like, present the world as like this endless stream of surprises like oh shit everything's a fucking black swan to a liberal no offense to liberals right and so like that's the thing we gotta get away from and so when and this is why like i love the dove and crane collective statement on this because um it was presenting a like story about how we should understand what's happening in a way that kind of directs us toward taking certain actions toward Foxconn, toward ensuring that like we operate clean supply chains, not not just in a green sense, but in a clean labor sense, right? And corporations should be accountable for that if they're shipping shit into the US. That's that's economic statecraft. Like when I say economic statecraft, that's what I mean. I don't mean zero tariff barriers, you know? I don't mean giving like intellectual property at big pharma a payday. Like, I mean, using economic policy and the Treasury and the Department of Commerce and the State Department to, like, make changes to the incentive structures that firms have so, like, they don't exploit workers the same way and that we don't benefit from exploitation. Like, that's the unvirtuous cycle that we're trapped in. There's not nothing that we can do here. Like, there is an issue of, like, how do you react with messaging? And on that part, I think Derek's right. And it is a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's hard to know what to say kind of thing. But that's not the horizon of action. The mess, the, the press release is not the horizon of what is to be done here. Just like with the George Floyd protests, you know, big events should force a reflection about, like, what could we have done differently and what could we be doing differently in the future? And like my concern is I don't see any of that conversation as being very likely to happen um, within the like DC bubble. No offense, bubble. Some offense. Well, I think, well, I think a lot of folks, they, they take what you just said and it's like, well, the US, it's not the US's fault, right? And I, that's not what we're saying, or I won't speak for you, Ben. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying, right? Um, it's more so it's not relevant yeah it's more so we we have to consider that our actions maybe influence the situation in some way and i it like it it's so wild to me whenever i read a think tank report it's always so focused on the other country and china's a really great example of this and there's really no analysis included about you know, previous U.S. policies or decisions or interventions that might have set up a structure or a dynamic within the foreign country, right? Or the fact that these other countries have their own constituencies that they have to deal with, right? And so I would argue that, you know, the the U.S., if it's going to say anything, it should say, it should speak to the protesters, tell them that it supports them, but also really focus in on what it really would do differently. Because yeah. Biden, I think, and liberal internationalists, we can call them whatever they want to be called these days, but there there has to be some type of self-reflection um, and, and willingness to also grapple with the fact that we can't control outcomes. And so sometimes we have to be thinking about what's the best facilitation role, like you were talking about with economic statecraft, right? 
or how, you know, if we're actually focused on workers' rights globally, you know, or even workers' rights in the United States, the answer isn't isolationism and protectionism. That does not even address the reason why corporations are offshoring, right? It's actually yeah. like tax code and all these other types of things yeah. that have nothing to do with China. So it, you know, and this is where it, it gets, I get so excited because so much of the anti-China rhetoric in DC, especially around the economy, I mean, you look at Tim Ryan's Senate bid in Ohio, and it was, his entire rhetoric was that China was to blame for all of the jobs leaving. And mm -hmm. it, I'm like, you actually have much better villains locally here, and you have much more power to do things to US corporations, right? And so, you know, it's, I constantly hear in DC, well, we should just justify these policies on the basis that it's good for competition with China. But so many of these domestic so policies stupid. are popular on their own, across the board, across partisan lines. We don't need to scapegoat China for these things. Yeah. Just Mike Brennis and I have a book. We're working on a book that makes exactly that argument. Um, so this is actually the every point that you just raised is like unbelievably natural segue into the armchair analysis. Um, so maybe I'll just go to that now. The way armchair analysis is going to work, uh, we're going to take turns sort of introducing and narrating pieces and then opening it up for discussion. And so this week I'm kicking off with uh, a piece in The Nation titled, Why Did the U.S.-China Relationship Collapse and Can It Be Repaired? by Jake Werner. And for the most part, I thought this was like a masterful essay. And I said so on one of the 10 social medias that I have to keep track of now. And next month, I have Pacific Power Paradox finally hitting shelves. And it's going to tell a story about how we moved from detente to rivalry with China, which mostly happened on Obama's watch. It's a story that tracks like remarkably well with what the the arc the historical arc that Jake describes in this essay so he kind of explains sino-us rivalry as having like there's in in the dis larger discourse there's two broad competing camps of interpreting how we got sino-us rivalry and one is focused on on leaders and he points to like well the tr the trump is evil narrative or trump tanked the relationship um and then the more popular one in dc is like well xi jinping is evil and he's a bad guy right and it's these bad guys one way or another that turned a strategically stable relationship into a car crash um and then the other explanation uh the other camp anyway is like well Maybe it's exceptionalism or it's nationalism of some kind, right? So like either the U.S. is single-minded about global domination or uh, Chinese authoritarianism meant it was always going to turn against the rules-based order um, as its power grew. And so uh, this was this was inevitable because of like primordial nationalisms in, on either side, you know. And Jake sets that frame up and then says like, look, all of those explanations, every single one, focuses blame on only one country and that it obscures the thing that's so obvious which is if you're trying to explain a dyadic outcome right or like the outcome is something about a relationship between two countries what are the odds that it's going to be entirely explanatorily you know connected to just one country and not both right or some other force right so he points out how like all of these arguments you know, they're analytically incomplete, but they're also like really self-serving, you know, like it's either American exceptionalism or it's reverse American exceptionalism, but it's not, it's like nonsense either way, or it's like the idiosyncrasy of leaders, but that doesn't help us like think about this shit. So he kind of like dispenses with all of these competing interpretations. And then he comes through with what is the kind of argument that like really resonates with my uh, book. And he argues, quote, the disintegration of free market globalization, which knit together the US and China over three decades has made the interests of the two powers incompatible. Since 2008, in both countries, extremely high levels of economic inequality and a powerless working class meant that 
wage-driven growth could not replace the global consumer demand that dried up. And then he makes a huge point. I'm going to read like one paragraph out. I don't love reading stuff out loud, but I'll do it. In both the United States and China, the gradual disintegration of globalization also discredited liberal thinking and eroded the political legitimacy of existing elites. The ideas and interests that before had aligned leaders in both countries, allowing them to ignore or finesse points of tension, broke down. Previously marginalized groups in both countries, like trade protectionists, security hawks, and xenophobic nationalists, now found a wide audience for their arguments. End quote. So, like, this is what's so important about his argument, which is also my argument, frankly. Like, there were always nationalist, jingoist forces in the U.S. and Chinese politics, right? But they were restrained by our strategic detente. And the global economic system that ensured capital flowed to us and manufacturing flowed to them weakened those nationalistic forces politically. But this whole economic arrangement, this economic order, was inherently unstable. Why? Well, partly because it's prone to financial crises that, that throw the legitimacy of it in question. And that's a fucking problem in itself. But also because... It's an arrangement that primarily benefits elites in both countries and really fucks over workers in China in particular, right? Not that it doesn't fuck over American workers at all, but like it's an elites versus workers thing. And that gets mystified and like op opacized. I don't know. Uh, like when you focus on nation versus nation colliding, you know? And so, you know, the economic order breaks down. It was going to strengthen those Anytime that economic order broke down, which was inevitable to happen eventually, it was going to strengthen and did strengthen militarist forces in both countries that had always been there. So yeah, this is, this is a powerful explanation because it, it redirects our action and like what we think needs to be done in a way. Um, it's, it's, it makes strategic competition as such seem a little bit like a fucking scam that works for some at the expense of most. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting, generally well-written piece. Um, I, I certainly think he's onto something when he identifies this uh, trend of, you know, when you go after China's tech, tech uh, or comparative advantage in tech uh, through state-owned enterprises like Huawei, uh, and you're focused on zero-sum competition with China, you inevitably get the securitization or alignment of uh, security policies and state-led industrial policy, um, which yeah. is actually a trend he identifies going on in both countries, right? It makes sense from China's perspective because it's a very centralized, top-down government, and America has its own peculiar history with sort of state-led defense um, uh, modernization and tech uh, and economic industrial policies. Um, yeah. So I, I think he's certainly onto something here. Um, it's definitely something to be aware of and resist. Uh, but at the same time, I'm wondering, so what does he see as the sort of global solution? What's the end state he would like to see? Is it a G2 simply? Because uh, I feel like we've been there before. Um, and some of the moral equivalency in the piece sort of rubs me the wrong way. Um, you know, I won't get too much into that. You know, China's a totalitarian state. Um, I don't think it stands for workers' rights or equality. Um, so I'm not sure how you enlist it as a partner in this sort of progressive agenda. Um, you know, how does China, a country with inequality uh, on par with the United States, I think its Gini coefficient is nearly the same, uh, support goals that the U.S. also doesn't really seem to stand for internationally, you know, global equality, uh, workers' rights, things like that. And green energy, you know, certainly here there's room for cooperation. Completely agree. But Currently, China is building more than half of the world's coal-based fire, uh, coal-fired power plants in Africa, in Southeast Asia. So I'm just not sure how you really get to this end goal. I think identifying starting points for conversations is important, and I think he's done that. Uh, but some of this sort of G2E pie-in-the-sky stuff just seems a bit lofty, in my opinion. To the extent I had a, a, a beef with the piece, which I don't really, but like... My quibble is really about that prescriptive positive sum punchline because it describes a desired goal, which is that like we have the great powers cooperating, right? Not that we have a G2 order, but that the 
the G2 is cooperative rather than confrontational, right? And like that is a desirable goal. We can control our side of the ledger for that. But cooperation as a desired outcome requires a strategy. It does not presuppose a strategy. You don't just say do it and it's done. Um, I mean, you can. And like the piece kind of does do, do that, right? Which I think is what you're like allergic to or reacting to. And that's my problem. Like your reaction is why I find it very insufficient to just state that we need cooperation with China. Because like, I think it's true on its face, but how we do it in a way that's plausible to people like you and to the right of you, we need that answer. Like that matters. Like you have to be able to tell that story about like how this will make sense. Because if you just declare cooperation as the thing that needs to be done, everyone in DC just kind of eye rolls and like continues with their day, you know? But that was like, to me, not the value out of the piece. It was, um, even though I think that's like the right prescription ultimately, I, the value add is like the historical explanation that um, really deflates the positive potential of, of any rivalry dynamic, how we got here matters. I agree. I mean, I think the, the challenge, right, is I, your point on the specificity of cooperation, I think, is so incredibly important. Because when you hold up examples like the strategic economic dialogue that the U.S. and China led during the Obama administration, the American mm-hmm. Friends Service Committee did a review of that, the outcomes of that dialogue like late last year. And they actually saw that both sides were meeting the commitments that they set out to meet. And so they were making progress in those areas where they decided to make um, action for action steps, right? And I do think that that is, you know, diplomacy is not a gift, right? Diplomacy is about getting strategic ends met without violence at the end of the day. Um, and creating sustainable peace, ideally. <laughs> um, if that's yeah, possible, not for everybody, but yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> and that's where um, the specificity, I think it's really important. Um, and again, kind of taking a step back from the American exceptionalist view of the world, right? Like, if we're going to cooperate on something, let's find something that is actually seen as universal you know the un has its problems the international human rights regime it has been criticized as a western product but the sustainable development goals um, for 2030 from the un are something that are seen by the global south including china as a non-western agenda because there was actual equity built into the process of the development of those goals and i do think there is a real opportunity potentially right, to test the the willingness for real cooperation, right? Um, that's where I'm like, oh, this weird, like, progressive libertarian, because I was raised by neocons, I have all of these Reagan mottos of, like, trust but verify. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a good one, right? Um, but, but, like, going back at just in terms of the DC conversation with China, it always gets me that, you know, I remember in the late Trump administration, in, like, 2019-ish era, started this conversation about the rise of China and what it meant. And people very quickly leapt to that it meant China was a revisionist power. We lived in a zero-sum world and we have to compete. Versus what was my view of like, we don't actually know what the rise of China means for the United States, in my opinion. And I also don't think they're necessarily as powerful as everyone makes them out to be. I mean, you see this with kind of the DOD reporting on their military capabilities. And while, yes, they are modernizing their nuclear weapons, right? They are building up new capabilities. The capabilities don't necessarily speak to intent, right? Um, And I think that's really important. And a lot of DOD analysis doesn't get into intent because they don't have that type of access to information. And so, you know, part of what I always am trying to get policymakers in Washington to do is to think about the fact that there are dozens of inputs that we should be considering on just one small minute portion of China policy, right? And I think in this kind of like 24-hour news cycle where everything is just constantly a crisis, it can be really hard. But I also think we give too much credit to some of these totalitarian states that they are such a threat or they're so powerful that the U.S. has to do something when actuality, potentially, our behavior might have something to do with their behavior or 
maybe we don't have to react and we can actually wait and see. Um, right. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of issues with strategic patience when it comes to North Korea. But in the case of China, right, I think the just looking at their fiscal situation, right, there's a lot of instability there. And just like there is here. And so long as there there is instability in the international economic system, they're also going to be experiencing it. And whether we like them or not, that is a commonality, right? And so I do think that there potentially is, I mean, and this is where the self-reflection when it comes to the protest for US policy, in my view, comes in, because so much of this is a result of unfettered capitalism with no limits, yeah. no regulation, right? And so seemingly- No willingness to face it either, like to, to name the beast or whatever. Yeah. And I think just, just, and that's the thing, it's like, can we just get comfortable naming that? It's okay. Right. We kind of let things go off the deep end. Like we can bring it back, maybe. But it's part of the challenge, I think, in all of these conversations is just being willing to talk through some of these things and name them and see what people think about them. Because I don't know, so much of the conversation always becomes like military, this techno, you know, acronym of this weapon and this capability. But it that's so insular and not necessarily part of the bigger picture. I always talk about assumed constraints, right? Make all these assumptions about how the world works. But for a lot of people in DC, they actually don't talk to a lot of people around the world, right? Or like working people. Um, and so I do think it's important to have some humility that we don't actually know everything. Yeah. I'm all for Sorry, that it. was like a rant and I, we got away from the article. Well, that's the thing. The, the podcast is primarily rant based. So like, that's <laughs> part for the that's that's how it works. That's a successful episode. Yeah, I mean, it's like with to the fucking nuclear arms race that we're basically in right now. The mil China military power report plays up how if if China continues on like this maximalist trajectory of nuclear modernization and expansion, it could have you know I forget what is it fifteen hundred nuclear warheads or seventeen hundred and by twenty thirty five. If it goes at this maximalist breakneck pace, which we have to bracket off, like, well, how reasonable of an assumption is that? But like the idea that you do that without the context of like America's 3,750 nuclear warheads is fucking laughable. That we're fielding As new is, nuclear weapons, that we're talking about yes. ground-based deterrence in Asia, right? Like, whoa, we're working on arms these, like, control trees. It's just, whoa, <laughs> It's so stupid. Like I'm on these national security listservs from like basically a former life. And like they, I'm in a different complete fucking world than all these people now, literally metaphorically. But like, I see how I see, I'm like in their conversation. Like I see what they say and think, and it's fucking insane. They think that it's not reasonable for China to expand its nuclear arsenal to catch up to an, a superior arsenal when you have a premise of being enemies they want to be enemies with china they want to have nuclear superiority and they don't want china to catch up that's an impossible fucking dynamic that gets us all killed what that's exceptionalism in action you know but even separate from that it's like the number of nukes doesn't determine whether deterrence holds or not the number of nukes is like it's it's just not the game like that doesn't really matter you know as long as you have a secure second strike capability and you can like hold them at risk it's really more about credibility than anything else and ultimately if you're spending all your time at the foreign policy level talking about fucking credibility of holding an enemy at risk of nuclear fucking strike you've lost the plot right that's not <laughs> that's not going to end well ultimately you can't keep playing fucking russian roulette with the world and expect to win every fucking time. This is a losing game that we're in, no matter how you slice it. And the fact that we are implicated in the things that we don't like is what drives me mad. And that we can't acknowledge that drives me even madder. Whatever. Fucking. Well, no, but the drop final the piece mic. of this is that, that, like, on the unfettered capitalism piece, like, the the international standards we have today on anti-money laundering, for example, they're imperfect, mm -hmm. but 
but they came as a result of domestic U.S. law. So the idea that the U.S. has no power to influence the international economy, how it works, how it affects American workers, is just a farce, right? It's like this competition. And like my immediate question when it comes to strategic competition is always like, competition for what? If we nuke the world, there's nothing to win, right? So... It's for the ability to set the rules that others abide by, which is A, super fucking vague, and B, not fully in your control. C, yeah, like, (laughs) C, that's primacy. That's hubris. That's an unstable distribution of power. Why do you think that that should be okay? Because that's how it was in the fucking cool 90s? No, that was a fleeting moment in history. You can't just keep trying to relive that no matter what price everyone has to pay. That's not a fucking, that's not a recipe for stability, let alone justice, you know? See, rant-based podcast. <laughs> All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees. Uh, undiplomatic.com for the newsletter. Subscribe to it. It's un-diplomatic.com. And, uh... Yeah, hope you enjoyed this rant-based podcast. Catch you next time. Peace.